had a big head, rounded ears, six feet in the body maybe, with a very, very long tail, very muscular build. As it was walking, it was, it was still looking at me, and that's when I really panicked. It looked at me and thought, oh, oh, there's a human there, I'm not scared. You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me. Nothing like a dog scream. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realise that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen, and could these cats even be naturalising without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 8 of Big Cat Conversations. Before we introduce our two guests, first of all I want to say a big thank you to all the web groups and Facebook groups that are helping spread the word about this podcast. In the early stages it's really important to have people promoting it in different ways, so a big thanks to everyone who's doing that. I want to say thank you to people who've been in touch with ideas and suggestions and we've had a couple of witness reports already which we hope to follow up in episodes next year. And please, anyone who's listening, feel free to get in touch at any stage by email with any kinds of feedback or thoughts or suggestions you have. Okay, now our guests today are Matt, who is the producer of a forthcoming documentary, Britain's Big Cat Mystery. We have put a web link under the refs and links page on the website to his trailer for that documentary. And our second guest is Paul, who's based in Avon, and he's on the case throughout southwest England. Now, Paul and I discuss the sighting he had in Dorset a few years ago and how his dog reacted. We also discuss the use of trail cameras and tracking and investigating areas where we think there may be big cat activity. And there's a link on the website under episode 8 to a great trail camera site in Colorado where you can get more ideas about using trail cameras. So welcome to our first guest, Matt Everett. And Matt is the producer of Britain's Big Cat Mystery, and that is a documentary forthcoming and got very good feedback from the pilot audience. And Matt's going to tell us about the documentary and about an encounter he had in 2015, which led to the inspiration behind it, really. So Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show. And can we start with your encounter, please? I was driving to work early. I think it was about 6.30. I was on route to a construction site. I was a labourer at the time. 
sun was just rising. It was still sort of dark 50-50. And I was just driving to work on autopilot like everyone does at that time of the morning. As I went down a country lane and large animal just bolted out in front of me from a hedge, not through a, a hole in a hedge, literally just over the top, I'm guessing, or just straight through it. My initial reaction was I thought, is this a dog and where's its owner? I was looking around. They couldn't see anybody there. Obviously, I had to do an emergency stop. And when I looked at the animal, it sort of panicked and was scrambling like any animal would be in that scenario. When it looked at me, I saw that it had ears of a cat and a short snout. And it was, in fact, a cat just scaled up maybe to the size of a German shepherd. So I assumed, wow, this must be the beast of Exmoor, given that I was on the foothills of Exmoor. So that's what happened when I first saw it. The animal panicked, as I said, and it sort of scrambled about in the middle of the lane. And to the right-hand side, there was a five-bar gate, and it just jumped over it in a single bound with ease and ran out into a field. And then it stopped, turned, and looked at me with its ears pricked up, looking fully, like, curious, as they say, cats are curious, as was I. And we just held each other's gaze for what seemed like quite a long time. And I did reach for my phone to try and get a photo but a car came the other way and I gave way foolishly and as I reversed back I just sort of caught a glimpse of its tail going for a hedge which had a track on the other side so I did reverse back further to look down that track as well and I did see it again just sort of walk down there and under a, another fence but it's just like a, two pieces of barbed wire fence just went underneath it into some tall grass and my opportunity to get a photo was missed but the experience was great i feel lucky to have seen one actually how long did all that take matt i'd say a minute which was quite a long time actually from the initial emergency stop to it going into the tall grass i recall vividly it having a, a black coat what i can describe as very shiny i'm sure there was probably spots knowing more about it now but at that time in the morning there just wasn't enough light so it was just shiny and the the eyes sort of greeny and it had pointed ears and like i say it's the size of a german shepherd i know that because i have two at my mother's farmhouse so it's very easy for me to scale it and given i saw it from two meters away so there's like no really there's no misidentification and, and there's no confusion over scaling there it was it was right in front of me lucky i didn't hit it to be fair it's interesting it came out onto that lane so close to your vehicle why do you think it messed up like that I think it might have been on the other side of the hedge, but I was confused to where my vehicle was coming from. So perhaps it was anticipating it to be behind it. But in fact, it jumped out in front of me in error. That's what I think. I think I started it and it jumped in front of me instead of away from me. OK, and it then had to work out an escape route. Sometimes people see them leaping over a hedge, but this one couldn't do that. Well, it literally just it circled and it was looking around everywhere. And then it the gate was right there. I mean, it was... I was the cat, I would have gone for the gate as well. Just the only opening there. They're talking about old country lanes with tall hedges, you know, tall, thick hedges that could stop motion. It was definitely panicking. So it was really close. You got a good long look at it at different angles and in different behaviour modes. Are you pretty confident it must have been a black leopard then, Matt? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the size, the colouring, I mean, that's the only thing it could be. You know, there are other hypotheses of what it could be, but most likely it's a pure breed, you know, leopard, melanistic. It was a textbook of what it should have been. But at the time, you know, obviously I researched it afterwards, but my initial reaction was it's a panther. Okay, and sorry to ask this one, but what if you'd had a dash cam? Oh yeah, you would have had the undisputable proof. 
And you would have done as well if I uh, managed to get the photograph or video that I was trying to get. You gave way to this other car. What if you'd not done that? Would you have been able to have got your mobile phone out and got some footage, do you think? Yeah, I would have got it through the railings and even as I reversed... When it went through the, the second hedge onto the track, when I backed up, you would have seen it there. Even if I had got it, I'm sure that people would have said that it wasn't from that distance. But <laughs> And was seeing a cat in this area a complete surprise? Well, I've always been aware of it. I grew up always in Somerset, but this was on the foothills of Exmoor and the Quantock, so they sort of adjoined. But before I used to live on the less Somerset levels around the Mendip Hills, and I remember growing up in the sort of late 80s and people talking about cattle mutilations and it actually interested me then but you know what the kids growing up in rural areas you know that's kind of cool and so you now work in tv and visual media matt do you find it frustrating that there's such a lack of good clear available footage of these animals I think the footage will come. I think it may already exist. It just hasn't leaked. Well, yes, I've seen several bits of footage which has not been released, and I quite understand the reasons why, but I also understand how challenging it is to get in the first place. I mean, the nature of it is when people do see it, when they do even do draw their phones fast enough to get the image, it's always as it's disappearing because it's seen them and it's always shaky with the maximum zoom, which isn't ideal because if you zoomed in, on something, the movement, the vibrations will give you motion blur. And that's what most of the stuff over the years has looked like, as it does in a lot of stuff from America on other subjects. But the technology's come along a long way. Trail cameras, obviously, you're very familiar with them. I think that they're great. But you really need, I'd say you really need to get something close on it. Otherwise, you're going to have the same problems. They're not sharp enough, the megapixels. They have to be close you'd almost have to draw it in you look the chances are yes i think setting up trail cameras and the use of lures or whatever bait type material you're using is crucial what about uh, latest technology of cameras and drones what do you think about the potential of those thermal imaging is interesting i mean that would work but it's obviously expensive and the logistics of how you would do that you mean you you almost need a team i think to, to see this through you need a, a team of people to be on it constantly yeah i can imagine the manpower and the logistics of using drones is going to be particularly challenging especially in nighttime situations matt we better move on to the documentary and i presume it was that encounter you had which led to the inspiration yeah for sure it's just an instant inspiration to uh, take it on uh, plus documentary is almost my specialism anyway so yes as soon as i saw the cat you know and I could have got the footage, which is the annoying thing. I could have made the film and used my own footage in it, if only my brain worked properly when I saw the animal. When I'm at home and I look at my cat, the way it looks at you when it's interested in you, it, it was just like a reflection just scaled up. And what are some of the main challenges in making a documentary on a topic like this, Matt? I imagine even just getting started is quite daunting. The people that investigate it, and they take it very seriously. So getting in with those people and being able to talk to them is obviously going to be the best source of information. After I met everyone, there was a, you know, a great group of people. And as I suspected, they had all the information and contacts. So without those people, it would have been very difficult. But with those people, it it was easy to get the leads. Okay, well, I guess I'm on the other side of that because I often have to suss people out before deciding whether to engage with them about a big cat project. And for me, it's about whether I think they're going to take the subject forward and treat it responsibly or are they going to bring more baggage to the subject? And there's plenty of that already in this. How did you get on with various official bodies that you contacted when you were making the documentary, Matt? Did you get any kinds of interesting responses? Well, aside from Case in 
up sightings and talking to you guys. I did contact Jeffra first of all. They, they said they'd give me an answer in writing, and, and then that also, they just fizzled out. And uh, in the end, nothing. Contacted the police, nothing. They just don't seem to want to engage with anybody about it. Well, I never think we should get too grumpy about all of that, because I think they're all in a very awkward position, and they've got no resources. Even the freedom of information request that was made, like some of them, forces refused to disclose it. So, I mean, what does that tell you? Why would you refuse to? <laughs> yeah, but that assumes that they've actually got the records in the first place. I mean, in some situations, if something is particularly sensitive, particularly a big cat incident, it may not even get documented, in which case you're not going to be able to find a record of it anyway, even if you're asked to do so. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I reported mine to the police and I've se- I saw the statistic that covered my time of the request and uh, mine clearly wasn't in there. So I did phone the local wildlife officer in Minehead. They didn't obviously make a record of that. There's other reasons why they might not want to, disclo- to disclose it because there are, there are repercussions that could be negative, as I'm sure you talk about a lot, how it could inspire fear and, if you like, a witch hunt. It's almost like with Brexit, 50-50, half the population would be, oh, leave the animals alone. And the other half would be like, no, we got to cull them. So (laughs) how would you appease it? You just don't address it. Yes, indeed. There's plenty of dilemmas in this subject, and that's a key one. Now you've finished the documentary. It's been ready to go for a while. What's the next steps? What's happening next? With film, I mean, as I am every film I've ever made, as time passes, you, you can look at it and you can see ways to improve it, which is something before a release I may want to do. And also there's... Always new sightings. I mean, it's a subject that never will never get put to bed. When do you say that it's finished? I have actually done a more updated cut. I don't even know if you've seen it, but I, I did Im- improve it already. Um, I'm, I guess now I live in London, that I, I'm sort of in a better place to uh, submit it to some more festivals, which is uh, I'm not going to just put it on YouTube and, and see what happens because I'd rather take it to the festivals and, and hopefully get some awards. I had some awards already. But I think we could accumulate some more. I mean, as a filmmaker, it's always nice to get some recognition for your work. If you don't get the distribution deal, at least you've got some accolades. It means something. Well, I wish you well with the distribution, Matt, because I think it's going to be great if we all get a chance to see it soon. So, fingers crossed. Now, can we come on to a potential spoiler? I hope you don't mind me drawing attention to this, but in a bit of the middle of the film, there's a piece where you interview a Marine. You actually interview him years after the event, and he was on Exmoor as part of the Marines trying to track down and even shoot what was thought of as the beast of Exmoor at the time, a big black panther on the moorland somewhere. And this guy actually says that he took a shot at it and he wasn't sure what happened, and maybe it went back to where it came from. And he then implies that somebody was perhaps letting it out from their property or whatever as a homing cat. It was being allowed to go out and it probably came back for food and this guy really implies they knew that was happening. Now that's alleged to have happened in other parts of the country in the past. So what did you make of that, Matt? The soundbite is along the lines of, or maybe it went back to where it originally came from with a big smile. literally what he says and it does leave it open he never told me anything beyond that yeah it was definitely the suggest mile it was great to find him i mean i wasn't actually aware that they'd been a unit deployed in the southwest of england because of a spate of killings to actually track down someone who was there some year well 30 years later i thought i was quite lucky to find that Absolutely. I think it was quite a scoop to get an ex-Marine to speak out like that. Although, of course, as you say, it was a long time after the event. Now, 
just to sort of sum up the main message and thrust of the documentary, what would you say about it, Matt? For anyone who's listening to this and is uh, wants to find out more information, or even if you're a true believer or non-believer, the film would it has some good evidence in it it's very neutral it lets you make your own decision by looking at the facts and what's there and drawing your own conclusions okay well can i now put you on the spot matt and ask you the standard question what do you think personally about big cats living in the wild in britain at the moment no one recognizes they're here so if they're here or they're not here i don't feel like it matters because they're not acknowledged it's not having an impact now so if they even they are here they're not having an impact so it's like an invisible man at a party. You know, no one knows they're there. I think it's great. I love to think that there's still some mystery in the world and stuff that like this. It's great. I've always strived to make films about stuff that interests me in this way. What about getting to the stage when there would be more emphatic evidence to reveal, Matt? Am I right in thinking you're concerned about the Pandora's box reaction there could be? Well, there is. I personally uh, would be concerned. So if big cats were acknowledged and it was accepted mainstream, I would have concern for the welfare of the animals and the reaction of the public. I think that you could end up with a witch hunt. I think that it could be potentially dangerous, much as I think it's good that the animals should be accepted. And But on the flip side of that, how would people react? And I think you're going to have a split down the middle. Some people are going to be like, yeah, these cats are great. You know, let's just monitor them. And then you're going to have others. Be, what about our cattle, our children? And I think that that could spiral into something ugly. All it takes is a few journalistic reports to be done in a certain tone to sort of stoke that negativity that people would react in that sort of negative way to it. Whereas there'll also be other elements out there that would want to promote sort of conservation approach. So it's a hard one. Okay, Matt, I think we're about done. Thanks so much for coming on the show and really appreciate having your views on this topic. Any final points you want to make before we leave you? I feel privileged that I saw one of these animals and don't sort of shrug it off as feeling that you'll be ridiculed because you do get that reaction from some people to make you feel like that. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing and uh, join the club. <laughs> Splendid. Thanks again, Matt, and all the best. Okay, our next guest is Paul from Bristol and he scouts out the areas in counties of Avon and North Somerset and South Gloucestershire. So Bristol and around is Paul's beat and we're going to get his sort of take on sensing big cats in the landscape in that area. And Paul, I mean, you've been a lifelong fisherman and you still are. Um, So what sort of turned you from fishing and other pastimes in the countryside to sort of getting an interest in big cats? I think even with my fishing, I've always looked for remote, out the way, non-commercial type of places to go. And um, I've had a few encounters with farmers on the Somerset levels who've talked to me about cats that they've had on their farms. So in the back of my mind, I've accepted that they were always there, but never really followed up any further until I found a deer in September of 2015, I think it was, that had quite clearly been killed, dispatched and eaten by something very big. And in one sitting and not the average kind of animals. So we started to decide to look a bit closer from there on in. 
Okay, and had you heard about fishermen's tales of seeing big cats? I mean, fishermen do see them, don't they? Because they're quiet and they're at dawn and dusk times as well. So you've got a good chance as, as a fisherman seeing constantly, a big cat. Yeah, yeah, constantly. I've heard, and also through lamping, I used to do a lot of lamping and that, several close personal friends who've had actual experiences and encounters where they've seen lynx or black panther-type cats in the lamp at night and things like that. So I've always just accepted that they were here, but never really had much sort of interest to look into it or one way or another, really. They, I just accepted that they were part of Britain yes. and the wildlife, so... Okay. As a fisherman, it's difficult to see an otter, isn't it? I mean, how often yeah, have you yeah. seen an otter um, as a fisherman? Sadly, I've seen quite a few dead otters, but live otters, I would say I've seen four or five live otters in around the place and probably a similar number of dead otters yes. as well, like road kills or mm. ones that have drowned in canals and things like that. Like okay. Seen, so. yeah. yeah, because I, I, for a lot of people who are sort of not out and about in the countryside that much, I say to them, don't expect to see a big cat and probably wouldn't expect to see an otter. It would be like that. Now, I know, Paul, you, you've really sort of tried to work out the landscape of sort of Greater Bristol and, as I said, Avon and South Gloucestershire and North Somerset. And, and you try to think where the cats would be when you sort of go looking for signs and think about cameras, things like motorway corridors and the, even the coastal areas and sheltered valleys and hillsides. Can you give us a sort of sense of how you sort of try and work out those kinds of things? hundred percent, yeah. It's, it, I mean, sort of what you see abroad is quite similar to what happens over here. But it's kind of places of comfort. So minimum cold winds, maximum amounts of sunshine, and also places where sound can travel. So valleys that sort of form a horseshoe shape and are west-south facing, so they get the sun, but not the cold winds and all the rest of it. And also any kind of people or animals moving about, the noise travels to the animals as well. And I found that that's kind of quite constant. If I see a landscape that suits all the requirements I think that I need, I often find carcasses of animals that I think have been killed and eaten by a large predator or footprints that I can't explain in this country. So yeah, the, the environment ties normally with some of the clues and the signs that I find in the areas. Mm. And and I mean, cats don't distinguish urban and rural, do they? I mean, you don't. You live on the edge of Bristol, and you, I do you indeed, feel yeah. you you don't have to go far. Not um, at all. No, no. I, I and I think as we sort of develop and build, we are getting closer and closer. So yeah, without wishing to create fear, but no, I do find signs of cats close to the outskirts of Bristol, mm. within a couple of miles of my house. Could you give a couple of examples? Not far from Avonmouth, which is a large industrial area. But then, yeah, within a mile of some of the warehouses in Avonmouth, I've actually found carcasses of animals that I believe have been killed and consumed by large cats. So, yeah, I, I, and I also we've built extra motorways in the area as well that I think may have kind of trapped the animals in a little bit. But they've got everything they need within that small area. They've got the woods, the cover, loads of deer, prey food, and nobody's really looking for them or out there disturbing them. It's small pockets of land that have been trapped by development and possibly they're just happy living in there. Mm. You feel the sort of foreshore and the coast, uh, the coastal areas are part of their beat as well, don't you? Another thing, yeah, definitely. In the winter, they tend to stay more in the woods and further up. But during the summer, when the crops are high, I think they're travelling through. And yeah, through local sightings and other things, I think they do move down to this foreshore along the edge of the estuary during the summer months. When I mean, I walked there the other day myself, and the amount of baby rabbits and young prey and what have you is rife down there. So it's an ideal place for them to be. Mm -hmm. 
And I know that you try and network with all kinds of people, especially farmers and people from sort of the game sector. And you're aware of how tricky it is to ferret out evidence from somebody who's got land that they want to keep it a secret on. And But you, I know that you, you try and encourage people to bring forward evidence so that we can use it educationally. But can you give us some examples of the the difficulties you've had in in that oh for sure yeah there's i mean everybody is different if you own a piece of land and you suddenly tell people that you've seen a leopard or a big cat on your piece of land you're inviting everybody from the most undesirable to the local lunatics to your land so and the press and the press or media yeah, yeah, yeah which can often want to glamorize things and make it sort of seem more scary than it is so people's reactions yeah i mean one couple that i know of that I believe they got good footage of a cat and a cub. And um, they've banned the local hunt from using their land anymore since they got the footage. And they've become very reclusive, Mm. put large fences up around their property and tend not to sort of, won't address it. I've tried to speak to them and broach the subject several times, but they want nothing to do with it. Mm. And that is understandable, really. I guess most of us would react like that. Definitely, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's an invite to everybody onto your land and you don't know who's going to be coming and yeah, yeah. different reactions different yes. reactions and, and I think as well people are worried because it's not an accepted animal in the country what your license rules are if you were to hunt it or do anything to it for attacking your animals are you within your legal rights to do that so there's a lot of sort of grey areas with it so yes sure. for various reasons people mm. keep it to themselves yeah yeah and I know you're very careful about who you talk to you choose the company you keep about this um, subject. Yeah, definitely. And I try to get people to talk to me about it rather than me going in and telling them. I will show them a bit of footage or a film and ask them what they think it is rather than telling them what I think it is. So yes. it, it brings people to you rather than you kind of... That makes them clam up, I think, if you try and chase people too hard. So Yeah, and be too pushy and yeah. and suggest that you know it all. and um, Absolutely, because I think we're all learning. And, and certainly, you know, I've spoken to so many people now and i've all i've learned is from other people passing on you know their observations and Definitely. Their wisdom. Yeah. yeah we can't really be experts in something that's allegedly not here so sure. yeah we're learning on the job as it goes yeah okay now i wondered if you could help me out with the word of the week because I, I think i was telling you off air as it were that um we in this podcast series every episode we're going to have a sort of a word that relates to big cats in some way and and this one is stealth and we don't mean stealth in a military term where it's you have the advantage by keeping undetected or whatever but stealth in the wildlife terms in sort of being undetected and quiet and cautious as you proceed what brought it home to me actually once was a vet who had seen one i've had about four different vets uh, as witnesses um, and this guy was um, on the county durham northumberland border in a huge forest and he said he basically spooked it with his land rover and it sort of bolted away but he said if you think about it they have evolved uh, black panther type cats as ambush predators have evolved to be invisible so they're naturally going to be very difficult to see. And I guess one of the other aspects about them is the, is the direct register walking that they often exhibit. So you've got the front foot will make an impression and the back foot goes into that same impression to keep quiet and cautious. And you'll often see a sort of double print, a sort of enlarged double print with two outlines in it from that direct register locomotion. But yeah. um, I know you think about when you when you go into the countryside a lot, Paul, you think about just going in in stealth mode, don't you? Because oh, it's the best sure, way yeah, to definitely. do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What are your tips about one of my stealthy? biggest one of my biggest things is just to sit down quietly in the woods and listen to the other animals. 
Corvids more so than anything. They give away predators. They chase them through the woods. They'll follow them. And that's one of my biggest kind of things. But yeah, just bother to sit down and stop every five minutes and listen to what's going on around you. Yes, and, and stand up with your back to a tree or something. Yeah, be, yeah, just for sure. Melt in. Rather yeah. than just chomping through and keep walking. These things could be sat in a tree above your head. Yeah. It's not hard for them to just lie there. They're, cats in general are very lazy. So yeah, lounging about for long periods of time. Yes, I remember being on safari in Kenya years ago and the safari driver was frustrated because we'd gone for an early morning sort of game drive, as they call it, and he hadn't conjured up anything for us to see at that time. So it was getting two hours into the drive and I said, why don't you turn the engine off and just park up somewhere and we'll wait? And he did that and after 15 minutes, a whole pride of lions came out right by us. And he was absolutely delighted. And the fittest and most active ones came first. And then the younger and the older ones came sort of late on. I think there were about 13 in the end. It was truly remarkable. Brilliant, but yeah. That was an example of being quiet and yeah. melting and into the landscape. Yeah, if you were carried landscape. on drive-in, you would have possibly missed them all. Absolutely. And just kept going. So, yeah, yeah, yeah just kind of fit in, really. Don't be in a rush. And yeah. But I mean, most, I mean, the cats, I think, are masters of stealth because they have to be, these types of cats. For sure. Um, I mean, all a lot of mammals, a lot of other wildlife. Is Last night I was watching a, mo- a mother a doe, a roe, and her fawn, and everything they did, every movement was quiet and cautious. Yeah, and everything is designed to avoid us as well, isn't it? In, yeah. With the wild animals. So, yeah, we are at a massive disadvantage. we got a large, stealthy creature that don't want to be seen. And we are really looking for a needle in a haystack, a population of around 200, 300 even, so in the whole country. So, yeah, it's a hard game, but... Yeah. I know that you, like me, have to sort of take delight from the other things we see when we're sort of trying to catch up on the big cats. Definitely, definitely. Can you give some examples? Well, I I would say that if your interest was solely in going out into the British countryside and seeing a big cat, you're wasting your time. Don't bother. You've got to enjoy everything that's out there. And in the last year, 18 months, I've discovered two colonies of polecats on the outskirts of Bristol, which I never knew existed around there. So it's things like that that I thoroughly enjoy and the other wildlife that I see, the habits. I've learned a lot of habits of animals because they act naturally in front of my trail cameras. And I have learned a hell of a lot more from doing this yes, than just from walking about and not seeing things and uh, taking notes and what have you. Sure. I know that some people say the trail cameras can take over a bit, but I and I do accept that because you don't want to lose the sort of tracking mentality and the tracking instincts. But if you're setting up trail cameras, you are thinking about which animals are going to go where and how they're going to behave. So and and you you have to follow tracks sometimes to see where the mammal trails are For and sure, yeah. the best types of locations. But um, yeah, polecats is something that's cropping up on our cameras, isn't it? That, uh, yeah, definitely. And and it's something that, like I said, people didn't know about. Do you know what I mean? There there are polecats now popping up all around the country. So, mm. and I would have never seen one. I've never seen one with my naked eye. But I think I've got something like fifteen or sixteen of them now on my cameras. Yeah, which is but, better than assessing them from and surveying them and their distribution from just finding dead ones on the road which for is sure, how they used yeah, to do it yeah 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 any other tips about tracking and looking for signs oh definitely that, yeah what, i what think your... a good a good trail for an animal is a good trail for all animals don't just go out and look for somewhere where you think there might be a cat if deer fox badger and all the other native species are using that path then the chances are if there is a cat in the area he will use the same path and follow the same routes that the other animals do 
after all they are his dinner so yeah. he's, he's got to be there so a good path is a good path no matter what and pinch points and kind of trap areas holes in fences which force animals to all move together they're, they're great places to put your cameras Okay, yeah. And of course, I know that you and I are a fan of David Neal's, the Colorado trail camera sort of expert. And I'll put the link to his trail camera footage under the episode on the website so people can see those. And one of his tips is, can you tell us about one of his tips about the rock in front of the camera? Yeah, for sure. And it's something that in the last sort of 12 months, 18 months, I started doing and it is incredible is to just put a stone or a log or something like that in front of your camera and then it makes the animals stop. After a period of time, they'll start marking it and then more come and more mark it. And yeah, it's amazing how many things delay their time past the cameras so you get an actual photograph rather than just a false trigger and things like that. And it, it just increases and increases. It snowballs as more animals scent it and mark it so it becomes more attractive. Another little thing that I would say to people who want to put a camera out is don't face them to the east because they become blind in the morning when the sun rises and it's often the best time to catch wildlife. So, yeah, I try not to face them to the east. Good point. Okay, yeah. And, and I think that point about the, the sort of the stone or the, the, the scent marker yeah. object in front of the camera is so good because that means that you don't necessarily have to put any sort of smelly lure out because you need something which delays the creature as it's passing the camera so you get a good snap of it. Otherwise, it could just be a blur. You might even miss it. But doing something natural is far better than having to smear some ointment or whatever or smelly smelly stuff in front of the camera because that's going to go after a while but the scent the scent marker post is going to be there for a long time and animals it are, are going to use it as signposting aren't they i, I, I have noticed with the, the marker by putting the marker down that a lot of local animals it becomes a, a regular stopping point for them i've had the same fox every day as he goes out on his travels he'll stop at the stone have a wee and walk on so it does definitely bring things in yeah. to the area. Yeah, and you, you do need to delay them to get a good picture. from. Oh, the, definitely, the yeah, yeah, yeah. People think that stick a troll camera on a tree and it'll catch everything. But as you know, I know, we probably get more false pictures than we do actual pictures, like just triggers of leaves and moths. And Yeah, even though the camera technology has improved in the last couple of years. Massively, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, just your personal views on big cats living wild in Britain. Um, what, what's your personal sort of take on it? Are you comfortable with it? Is it interesting or are, you, are there sort of various issues that you'd like to raise? At this moment in time, I don't really think they're a problem just because of population numbers and the deer population of England has absolutely exploded. I think it's keeping them. They don't need to take farm animals anymore like they did back in the 70s and 80s. Now, I wouldn't like to put a sort of number on the deer in this country, but we've now got Rowan muntjac deer everywhere and i can sort of go to industrial areas places in the middle of town and i can find deer in every park basically and everywhere there's a bit of greenery so i think that for that side of it is brilliant because we need an apex predator i don't know when the balancing point might turn and people are seeing them more regularly and it becomes a bit of a problem but at the moment i think it blends in there's not enough of them to cause a problem and we're going to get not much more than the odd occasional glances and things like that mm. so yeah as it is i think carry on and monitor the situation basically but yeah the population will definitely rise and there will come a point where we have to face the fact that they are here and mm. 
how do you find other people that you sort of network with? I mean, it's difficult to generalise, isn't it? But what kind of feedback do you get from other people um, that you Massively varied, massively varied, yeah. I believe the hunting fraternity kind of find it almost insulting that I'm claiming there's an animal in the wild that they haven't seen themselves. So, or some of them, Paul, because I know quite a few that do. Um, oh, definitely. Once they have seen one, yeah. obviously they'll be. But if they haven't ever had an encounter or seen one, they seem to be the worst skeptics. It's almost like it's an insult to their ability as a hunter or whatever they do in the countryside Mm. that if large predator exists and they've never seen it so Mm. i do get quite a lot of harsh things from gamekeepers and that type of people other people just accept it sort of pretty much as i have i mean horse riding community is quite a good community to um because they're out early in the morning and the horses react to the animals present they seem to accept it quite happily. Mm. But yeah, like I said, it's different sort of people who have different views and opinions on it. So yeah. every, like, with everything, right, we're all different. And yeah, there's no right or wrong. No, 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 no. We're not here to sort of make, force people to have a certain uh, view on it. No, and as I said, I've seen one with my own eyes. I can't unsee what I've seen, yeah. so I can never disbelieve it. Yeah. So it's, it's what you do once you see that with that information. I decided to find out more. Mm. And it's become a little bit of an obsession, so... Yeah, well, tell us a bit about that one to finish off with. Well, basically, I think the first cat I've seen in this country, and I've only ever seen two, and both times very briefly, was not long after I found the carcass of a deer in 2015. I was in Dorset at a small place called Tarrant Moncton. And I was driving down the road in my car, and I seen a large black cat for a gap in the hedge. And even to this day, I can't explain my reactions because I just drove past it as if it was a casual, oh, there's one there. Didn't take much notice. And 10 minutes down the road, I suddenly thought, what have I just seen? And why didn't I do more to it? I did run back and take my dogs out and go to the area. But yeah, at the time, I drove past it and it sort of taken 10, 15 minutes before it actually sunk in what I did see. So yeah, it's totally, everybody thinks they'd get their camera phone out and take a perfect picture, but no everyone's reaction is going to be totally different even if you're expecting it to be there mm. it's not the same when you do see it so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you can't predict how you're gonna react not at all no. now that that one you saw did you see its tail yeah yeah it, it was in a crouched down position moving away from me slinking along the sort of hedge so yeah and it, i would say from having looked into it further now it was possibly a large male cat what we've seen because the second cat i've seen We'll just finish that one, that, that first one. D- the tail and the sort of body length and everything, what? Massively muscular, yeah, and a great bit. Of the tail was sort of continuing on longer than it should have done for a cat. I mean, I've got a black cat in my house, and, yeah, the proportion of the tail in comparison is totally different, yeah. Mm. What do you think that one was doing that you saw? It Well, it looked to me like it was stalking along a hedge, looking for an encounter for something to eat, basically, mm. like any other kind of predator that would yeah rabbit or small mammal yeah yeah foraging hunting yeah yeah certainly and and the reaction when i went back with my dogs pretty much confirmed what i'd seen because yeah i got working dogs and they're not very frightened of most things that they encounter and when i took them back to the spot where i'd seen the animal the dog wouldn't leave my side he was touching against my leg his Mm. tail was tucked in between and even my wife would not mention the fact that i thought i'd seen a cat in the field asked me what was wrong with me dogs because they were behaving so strangely so have you detected that behavior in the your dogs at other times when you've not seen a big cat and thought i wonder if we're close to one 
to be honest, that was possibly the most I seen the cat. I went back with the dogs, and the reaction just confirmed ever. I've never really seen. I've seen a few out when I think possibly there could be something around me because the dogs are getting very clingy toward mm -hmm. me. Basically, yeah, they normally when I'm out walking, they're sort of fifty yards in front. When they come clinging back and they're acting a little bit strange, then yeah, sometimes I think possibly I'm being watched. So. Mm. Interesting, yeah. And the other encounter you had, so the second one? The second encounter was literally, I was on the motorway in a van driving down the motorway and I seen one in a field alongside the motorway very briefly, but it was a lot lighter in stature than the first one I seen. So I would assume one was a male, the first one I'd seen as he was a very bulky muscular, whereas the second one was almost lean like a greyhound in stature and it was silhouetted perfectly in a field, so... And I later found out that the same area had five or six reported sightings from when I seen that one. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. How could you tell driving that it was a big cat? How did you get the scale right? How did you get the animal I right? I was a passenger oh, okay. at, at the time in a van, yeah. so I wasn't driving. So I, as I always am, just looking around the edges and scanning the fields. And it was perfectly silhouetted. And again, the tail, which is curled up at the back of it and almost as long as the body, was yeah. the big giveaway, basically. But yeah, th that one was literally a perfect silhouette in the middle of a field sort mm. of thing, alongside the motorway. So. Both of them black? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The second one, I wouldn't say 100% because it was quite a silhouette. Yes, if it's backlit, you don't really know, do you? Situation. Fully? So it could have been a, a brown colour. But yeah. because it was in a silhouette situation, it looked black. But yeah, because yeah. anything backlit is going to yeah. be dark, isn't it? That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah. Paul, I think we're about done. Unless, are there any final points you want to make? Not really. Can... I think, though, just if people were interested in the subject, yeah, don't be put off by people's mocking and doubting and what have you. Go and have a look and get involved. There are groups now popping up on Facebook and ways that people can become involved. It's definitely here and... Mm. And you'll learn lots about our wildlife and uh, outdoors anyway, yeah. which is fascinating yeah. in its own I, right. I have, yeah. Like I say, in the last two or three years since I've been doing the cameras and what have you, I've learned so much more. And I spent all my life in the countryside and I'm getting on for 60 now. So, yeah, the educational side of it is absolutely fantastic. So, yeah, get involved, definitely. Brilliant. Paul, great to have you on. Thanks very much indeed. And, and thank um, you, Rick. It's been brilliant. All thank the you. best. Okay, that wraps it up for episode eight of Big Cat Conversations. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the two-stage process of tooth pit analysis. We'll be looking at how the bones of suspected prey are found and collected and how they are then analysed in the laboratory. So we're on the Dorset Heathlands with Jonathan McGowan and then in the laboratory with students and Dr Andrew Hemmings at the Royal Agricultural University, Sirencester, next episode. Thanks very much for listening, everybody, and see you next time.